The Start On Demand. On demand. Today we spoke with Winnipeg woman Susan Creepart, whose husband is a doctor, a critical care doctor. Owen Mooney is his name. And he now has COVID-19. We'll hear her message to Manitobans and to Manitoba's health minister. We learned today that a lot of Canadians are seeking some normalcy by engaging in something called the fake commute. We'll take you to Minidosa, where something wonderful has happened in the form of a poppy blanket. And of course, we'll talk more about the election, in particular, CNN's John King and his wizardry in front of that touchscreen monitor. That got us asking the question, who have been your favorite broadcasters over the years? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, November 5th podcast for The Star. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Producer Jeff Fortier back in the fold after a couple of days off. Welcome back, pal. Thank you. And, I, well, I know Fortier has caught up on sleep. Greg, you barely got any sleep two nights ago. Did you stay up last night hoping that you might get some results from this presidential election? I have to admit, I have learned to know better. <laughs> so I did. I went to bed just uh, with the sense that Georgia was not going to be called or decided last night. Arizona was not going to be officially confirmed or decided last night. Pennsylvania, lots of votes to be counted there. So uh, lots of states still in limbo. So no, I, I went to bed at a very reasonable time last night and confessed to sleeping quite well. And Loren, I've been at Nevada, for example, if, if Joe Biden takes that, he gets the six electoral votes there that would uh, give him, according to some like the, um, the globalnews.ca, they've got him at 264 votes. Uh, if he gets Nevada, then that's it. And a lot of people on social media saying, Nevada, would you just hurry it up? But yeah. uh, we're, they're, they're not apparently going to release any new numbers until 10 a.m. Pacific time. Yeah, midday today we'll be hearing from them. In fact, they didn't do as much counting yesterday as many people would have liked. And so that's part of the equation when you watch all this. I did stay up a little later, not as late as the first night, but I think it was around 10 that I called it last night only because I was getting tired of doing all the math like I was like not just the math to 270 it was you know you're watching things in Georgia and they'd say something like okay we still have 150,000 more ballots to come in and then they were saying x percentage of those are typically democrat and then if you they have that and I was like he needs to close the gap by 180,000 minus 150,000 times carry the one nope don't have it like I'm out so it was just too much mental math for me in the end but man even Georgia today which is a state that Democrats haven't held since I believe it was 24 years ago. Uh, I think the lead there for Trump is narrowed to just 18,000 votes. So it's really, it's really tightening everywhere. Fascinating, frustrating. (laughs) I just, it's exhausting. I don't know how Americans are doing it when here from this distance, it just feels like a lot of uh, anxiety as you watch it all take place. So you're not jealous of the fact that this is stretching into now Essentially a third well, day, Lorette? I, I said to you guys, I, there is a part of me, and this is probably going to make people think I'm crazy, but I I, I've, I love the normalcy of our elections. And I read a lot of comments on social media about how you need to be thankful. When you have an election that doesn't cause you know this kind of chaos, that means you're living in a, a decent place, first of all, and that you have a decent system, maybe. But, you know, at Canadian elections, at least the last few, there's been a couple surprises in terms of how big a majority might be or if it's going to be a minority. I know with the orange wave and Jack Layton days, there was a bit of at least excitement there because that was unexpected. But usually, you know, the election coverage starts at 8 and it's been as early as 8.05 sometimes when it's <laughs> called by a network. It's like five minutes. You're like, oh, All right, so it's over. It's like okay. Christmas and, dinner. Yeah. And meanwhile, Eight hours here, to prepare right, and nine exactly. minutes to eat. <laughs> exactly. You have that turkey in the oven all day long and then the kids are gone at 6.06 and you're like, well, hang on. I, Mama didn't cook in the kitchen all day for you to run downstairs like that. So there was a part of me yesterday thinking how fascinating it was, but that's easy to say if you're watching it as a show 
right? Or as a spectacle, when it really right. means something to you, that's a whole different ball game, and it means so much to so many of us. So I'm not jealous. I'm just, I am fascinated. So we will continue to follow that, of course, throughout the morning. But uh, it looks like it'll be a few hours at least until we get some new uh, numbers. But as we say, uh, Loren said, Georgia is tightening that. And I, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Donald Trump, as of yesterday morning, had o- over 100,000 mm-hmm. vote lead in that state. Yeah, and I think uh, in the time from when you got here yesterday morning until the time we went on the air, his lead actually shrunk from about 200,000 or more. And as Loren says, right now it's down to about 20,000 uh, with more vote to come in that state and a predominant or prominent amount of uh, votes coming from the Atlanta area, Fulton County. So uh, that that race is not over. I'm just really uh, fascinated like Loren is just uh, at all the math, everything that happens and John King of CNN is my new hero. The way he operates those boards is absolutely incredible. You mentioned it yesterday, Brett. The knowledge with which he speaks about the geography of these different places is absolutely overwhelming. He has got to be a guy that if you're having a trivia contest, you want him on your team. Oh, for sure, for sure. The way he is such a master at that board. I actually, on Tuesday night, saw him stumble I think for the first time ever, that's not to say he has never stumbled, I've just never seen it, but there was a moment where he was trying to zoom in on one spot and it was bringing up another and he sort of, he did one of those, um, oh, just uh, hang on a second here, oh, let's zoom back, and it was just, it was it was like, oh, he's, he's a human being, he's not a machine, but he's very, very good at his job and a lot of people have been showing affection for him on social media for how good of a job he's been doing, so that's actually going to lead to a conversation we're going to have at 6 45 who are your favorite broadcasters be it radio be it television or maybe even in this new era of broadcasting where a lot of people like to go to youtube for stuff i i have a whole bunch of youtube channels that i enjoy so text us who your favorite broadcasters are at 204-780-6868 loren do you want to give us maybe a, a hint on yours no, because I, I can't decide just yet, oh. so I have a long list of them. I have them from when I was a kid, and I have certainly female mentors that I really have watched and have been encouraged by over the years. I have ones that I don't like when they're depicted on TV, and it bugs me when certain things get, you know, journalists get depicted in a certain way on in fictional accounts. So I have all sorts of thoughts on oh, this. I just cool. wanted to say one last thing. John King is left-handed, which I realized last night. And so here he is using that board. He has to stand next to it with his right hand being the closest to the board. And every once in a while you hear him say, sorry, just excuse me, I'm left-handed, so I have to turn my back to you. And then I, I was additionally shocked by that yesterday because I was like, here he is playing that thing like a piano, and he's a southpaw, and they got that thing all set up for a righty. So kudos <laughs> to him. Yeah, you'd think they'd come up with a better like a better <laughs> setup for the guy. Wow, well, he should I be think... on the other side of it, if he you know what I mean. He should be, but Wolf wants yeah. to stand on the other side. That's, so, that's right. So, Wolf John, gets the... <laughs> so John gets the short end of the stick. Yeah. I, I just realized that last night. I don't know why that has not stood out to me before, but I was like, cut this lefty a break, man. He's, fingers are tap dancing over that board, and you got him <laughs> standing on the right side. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. And we've been telling you for days now about the concerns that doctors in our province have regarding COVID and the healthcare system, with hundreds of those doctors putting their names on a letter sent to the provincial government. One of those doctors, a critical care internal medicine doctor, was healthy when he signed it. Now he's been diagnosed with COVID-19 and is confined, Loren, to the basement of his home. In a Facebook post on Monday, Susan Creepart spoke of her husband, Dr. Owen Mooney, saying, quote, Owen works out every day, every day. He is more healthy at 44 than most 20-year-olds, and he can barely sit upright. He is a weak, he is weak, he is suffering. Susan and her kids were also tested for COVID-19, and while their tests came back negative this week, week Susan is going to get another test as now, Greg, she's experiencing symptoms. Well, I hope you're feeling a little bit better this morning, Susan. Susan Creepart joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Before we ask you how Owen is doing, how are you feeling, Susan? Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm hoping it's just a cold. 
Well, and isn't that the isn't that the trick these days? Is yeah. trying to uh, understand where our symptoms fall, and the, the whole notion of is this something that I normally deal with, or, or something more sinister? So, when did uh, when did your husband get sick? Um, he had a really really um, busy week at work um, with COVID, and he got home Saturday and was just kind of feeling run down, but kind of accredited to the fact that he had like a really hectic week and it was emotionally draining and physically draining. And, and then he woke up Sunday and was still kind of feeling a bit tired and achy, but not like too bad. And then he went to work at like 7.30 and by 8.30 he had texted me and he was on the phone with occupational health. Um, he just rapidly started... <laughs> excuse me, um, to decline. And it, um, like, just general malaise. His muscles were aching. His nose started running, which isn't necessarily a, a symptom, but uh, his chest started tightening. So he came, he was in the car by 9, got out of there, uh, came home, laid down, and then went back to HSC at one thirty for a test. And then his it was a rapid test. And then he got his results that night. And so- he hasn't been out of the basement since. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, how is he now? And in terms, first of all, he's got to self-isolate, right? That's part of the requirement. But before we get into just how you're managing that in your home, just how is he feeling this morning? Um, I haven't talked to him yet this morning because um, I had to set my alarm to wake up for you guys, to be honest. Um, But uh, he's uh, most likely sleeping right now. Um, As of yesterday, we kind of do it in a, are you better, the same or worse type scenario with the symptoms for him, um, just because it's early on. And he hadn't been worse yesterday. And then uh, at the end of the night, he was feeling pretty terrible. And he hasn't been sleeping very, like it's hard for him to sleep. Um, and so he just, he's just, he's not well. But. You talk about how it's a virus that he has seen the full trajectory of what you call its destruction, but was he surprised given how healthy he is to see how the virus has affected him? Um, he, it's humbled him, that's for sure. And I think what I love about Owen is he's already thinking about how he's turning, he's going to, we're expecting him to recover. Um how he can turn this into better care for his patients because now he can be more empathetic to their experience. Um, he, he's, he's shocked by, it's like it's a life force sucker. Like it just, for him, he was describing like the, I think this is day number two, to get up to go to the bathroom, he had to like psych himself up for like 45 minutes just to get off the couch. Like him to sit upright is a chore right now because he's just so exhausted and it's, it's, yeah, I know it's it's humbling, and you can totally see even through it. I can't see him. We Facetime all the time, and I'm talking to him through a door. But um, you can see how this would be devastating for someone immunocompromised or for older people. The only reason we're really talking about it is just <laughs> an older person getting this. <laughs> like this thing is no joke, and he is healthy. Like it's not the flu. Like I've seen this online so much. Oh, just like another. Food. You guys, <laughs> I am imploring you to stop saying that and believing it and if you do believe it it's not your fault like i'm not here to judge but it's not the flu like this is not the flu there are easier ways to gain perspective susan into somebody else's life and that whole notion of being more empathetic uh, when dealing Uh with uh, one's patients but this has to be driving your husband crazy to be on the sidelines like this in the middle of this pandemic. I know you worry for him and his health and his recovery, but there's got to be a mental aspect to this of, of the, the idea that, that he's unable to help anyone else right now. Am I off base on that? Oh, not at all. Owen is, uh, you know, it's funny. I'm talking about him like he's some saint. Every marriage has its ups and its downs. We happen to be on one of the upswings. So who knows? (laughs) Maybe in a month I'd be happy he's in the basement, but, um, (laughs) He's a, he's a helper. He's a, he believes strongly in what he does. He, he believes in patient care. He believes in a lot of the people, by the time they see Owen in the hospital, they are not well. Um, when he's working in the ICU, when he's in general wards, it's different. But um, he feels helpless. He feels like his hands are tied. And although he feels like his experience will help him ultimately be a better clinician, it, it's, it, it, it's frustrating for him 
to hear that people aren't taking it seriously as they should or still going out or not following community guidelines, um, you don't want to be visiting him on one of these wards, I'll tell you that. But no, he's he's anxious to get back and help, and he's got called. Like, they're a team there, the the nurses and the hospital staff and the other doctors and the everybody in that building, um, there's a camaraderie right now especially, and uh, he just wants to get back out and help. Well, it really gets to what we've been talking about, Susan and Brett. Did you want to hit pause for a second and, and bring her back? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, let's continue our conversation with Susan Creepart in a moment, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Once again, if you're just tuning in and missed the beginning, Susan Creepart's husband, Dr. Owen Mooney, critical care doctor, has COVID-19. He's confined to the basement and Susan and her kids have been tested. Uh, their tests were negative, but Susan says she's experiencing symptoms. We've heard her cough a couple of times, so she is going to get another test. Susan, you were mentioning just the idea about your husband. He's he's a helper. He's a doctor. That's what doctors do. And so in the midst of all this, we've also had doctors in a very rare move reach out to the premier and the health minister essentially begging for more help. And so I'm curious if you can tell us what that process was like for your husband to put his name to that letter, because that doesn't happen often when people speak out like this, I don't think. Um, no, and you know, it was, he was struck, like it, it wasn't a decision that he or anybody who signed that letter took lightly. And doctors historically aren't the ones that come up and stand up and speak out about things like this. So they're the canaries in the coal mine, and to imply that they had an ulterior motive, I, I, like, rage tears are coming to my eyes right now. Like, what did they have to gain? What do you think their ulterior motives were other than patient care? They're watching their colleagues drop like flies. They're seeing patient care diminish. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be a... Well, it's, it's been a week. Let's just say that. Um, it, it's it was it was not a decision he took lightly, and there's probably going to be ramifications. I'm sure there will be. It, it's just ridiculous. What do you think? They're all running for office. And they're all asking for raises. No, they're asking for proper PPE. They're asking for proper equipment. They're asking for trained colleagues. Everyone's worried about beds, beds, beds. What do you think are beside the beds? Machines. Who runs those machines? People. What do those people have to be? Well, so it's just not a matter of having physical space for a bed. Oh, sorry, kind of. No, I, and Susan, I appreciate that. No, it's the frustration I think that many people are feeling, and that's what what doctors have been telling us. That's what's compelled them to to sign their name on a note like that uh, because they're really, really stressed about what's going on right now. And so uh, to hear then yesterday that Minister Health Reason not only made those comments about what was the most motivation of these doctors, but also hasn't apologized. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Is, a, is an apology necessary? And, and just to remind our listeners, we have asked Mr. Fre- Minister Friesen to come on our show at any point throughout the day of all hours of CGOB. So far, that offer's been refused. What would you like to hear from him? I don't know, maybe that he's got it. Just kidding. Uh, like, you don't got it, buddy. And I, I just think, yeah, apology would be nice. I don't know what it's going to do. I'd rather see, you know, them act on some of the recommendations. Um, I get that they're in a jam. I get that it's a tough spot. The government did not cause corona. Um, they're dealing with this as a... And it's, they must be so freaking stressed out. Like, I get where they're coming from. But he did a, he did a, he did a dirty. Like, it, say Sorry. If it was anybody else in any other industry, their boss would force them to say sorry because it was a, it was a crappy thing to say. And it was, it was a very politically ill-timed thing to say. And the camera was so close on you and you were so, your tone and everything about it, they're, they're not trying to hurt your feelings. This isn't a personal thing. They're just trying to prevent... M- I can't even. So, yeah, go ahead, say sorry. I don't know. Is it unusual, Susan, to see so many doctors coming together to agree on such a united front? Uh, publicly like this, I would say so. They, they, I'm sure they've agreed for, people are saying it's been weeks, for, for a year, since last flu season, when they had two flus, different flus collide, and they've had, you know, having a, a ICU, with, and I'm no expert here, this is just me, eavesdropping, so I don't want anyone to think I'm speaking on behalf of any doctor or anything, because I am certainly not. 
But having a lack of ICU beds or, or a room in a hospital or hallway is not a, a unique to Winnipeg. It's not that our government has so catastrophically failed us that we're the only place in the world that has... No, this is, this is a universal problem. Um, so is it rare that a group of doctors that big would put their... Yeah, they're not... Doctors do their work. They're, they're down, they're the front, like they're, they're behind the scenes doing their work. They have their opinions. They voice them to government. They have a, a, a governing board for themselves. They, but for them to do this, yeah, no, I think I would say it's rare. Susan, you, you obviously are bringing us a tremendously unique perspective here as the wife of a doctor and as the wife of somebody with COVID-19, but you're also a mom. You're a member of a community. What are you telling your friends? What is the message that you would like us to get the benefit of your and Owen's, um, shall we call it, uh, horrific experience? Um, I, I, my community is great. I live in Charleswood, and I couldn't love it more. Um, what I want people to know, and that's the only reason we're speaking out about this, is, and there's stuff, like I made mistakes too. We were relatively careful. I still haven't heard from public health about Owen's test. So my bubble hasn't been informed, except they were. I called them Sunday night when I found out about Owen. I had to call one friend. I had to call my neighbor that I walk my dogs with, my mom, and my in-laws. Period. None of those were easy calls to make. On behalf of my two kids, I had to call four families. None of those were easy calls to make. Pop your bubble. I realize how asinine it is to have kids at school in masks and... Sorry... I apologize, Uh, in and out of stores in masks, and then we let them hang out after school, whip off the masks and eat your Cheetos and play your video games, each one touching a a controller. Like, I think we became laxed as well. Um, It's not like we caught this from a 200-person toga party, but there were mistakes made on our behalf as well, and I think we got a bit lax, and we just want to remind people now is not the time to, to take this for granted it's 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 still here i mean it's here more than ever and it's we used to be so vigilant about it and i think we're very vigilant in certain areas and then our fatigue sets in and we we allow instances where we couldn't where we shouldn't like my grandma is 96 or 97 she's recovering from surgery at my mom's house my mom's in her 70s they're both pistols they're both very healthy for their age um on halloween i went to pick up candy at my mom's and i ached to give her a hug like, we're a hugging family. We're huggers. We're kissers. We're I love you family. And I didn't. And thank freaking God. I didn't touch anything in our house because my grandma was there. We were extra careful. I didn't touch anything. We stayed at a distance. And when I found out Owen's diagnosis, I was like, oh, shoot, I saw my mom. I saw my mom. What did I do? What did I So thank God we were distant or else this could be like the thought of my mom getting this or my grandma or anybody's parents or whatever it's one thing to feed Owen from behind a basement door. We feel so lucky that he's able to isolate at home, that we have the space and we have, like, we're very, very fortunate. The thought of my mom who lives on her own or my grandma or any of your immunocompromised fat, like, to do this alone and, and to not be able to visit, them, like, it just breaks my heart. Susan, before we let you go, how are your kids doing? Oh, God, I need them to go back to school. They're doing so well. <laughs> this home learning thing. <laughs> I wish you could hug a teacher, but you can't. Just give teacher a good eye contact through your mask today because, man, all their teachers have stepped up in home learning, which is not my forte, but is going to be theirs. Um, they're worried about their dad. They're starting to be worried about their mom, but they're, uh, they're troopers. They get this. Like Kids are more resilient than I think we give them credit for. It's like oh, at school they're not going to wear their mask. It's like you expected them to use a toilet eventually, feed themselves, do all these things. Wearing a mask, if that's the new reality, kids can do it. But I think they need, it's not just school, it's not just stores, it's out and about. Like at lunch, you'll drive, I drive by like Charleswood School and I'll see the people coming to and from McDonald's, or this is before Code Red, obviously. But in packs of 10, 12, 15, or whatever kids do, and then... They go in the store, they put their mask back on, then they go back to school, they put their mask back on. It, it negates the purpose. And those are different cohort groups. So it's just, I just think we need to kind of pull up our socks and I, I promise you it'll be worth it to prevent your household from dealing with this and the stress that goes along with it. Well, Susan, thank you so much for sharing your story. I hope 
Owen gets better soon, I hope. Uh, you are just normal sick, as you put it to me yesterday. Um, and uh, thank you again for taking the time to tell us your story. I'm sure it's just a cold. Thanks, guys. All right. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, if you had at all have been watching the election coverage, you have no doubt seen CNN's John King in front of the touchscreen going through all of the various maps like some sort of a wizard. And that's led many people to jump online, to jump onto social media, and to praise his efforts because he really is a master at that. Other news outlets do the same kind of thing, but he's been the best for years at that. So that got us thinking about who are your favorite broadcasters? Who have been your favorite broadcasters over the years, whether you just like them or maybe you saw them as a mentor or an inspiration, whatever. You can text us, 204-780-6868. We'll give away a Santa Lucia pizza after 9 o'clock based on your texts and stories. Let's go around the horn here. We got Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, Jeff Fortier back in the saddle. Kelly, why don't we start with you, sir? Well, he's retired now, but my all-time favorite broadcaster was Jim Robson, uh, who was my inspiration. He was the longtime voice of the Vancouver Canucks when they first entered the National Hockey League. I guess it would be kind of the equivalent if you were a kid growing up in Winnipeg. It was either Fryer Nicholson or Kurt Kielbach, and so Jim Robson was my guy. Jeff Braun? Uh, For me, it's uh, always been David Letterman. He just... He's so relaxed when he was doing his talk show. He makes it's a hard job, and he made it look so so easy. You, when other guys do it, you can just see all the strings and wires. But with Dave, it just it seemed natural, even though it's like one of the most unnatural broadcasting gigs there is. Jeff Forte, I'm gonna have to go with Conan O'Brien. Um, look at you guys, late night talk hosts. All yeah, right. but Conan <laughs> Conan's just hilarious. I love the bits he does, especially with like uh, uh, Kevin Hart. He does great bits with Kevin Hart. But uh, yeah, Conan. Funny guy. Yeah, he's a good one, too. Uh, Loren McNabb. Oh, boy. Uh, I love The Daily Show. Trevor, I, if we're going to go with late-night stuff, I could give a shout-out to Donna Friesen because she's one of the first female anchors of a national newscast, at least in English Canada. And I, and I love anchors that have spent a lot of time in the field and have that field experience and i think there's like a misconception that it's someone just a talking head up there reading the news and that's rarely if ever what it's ever been so if you've got experience and you've been out there and then now you're back in the newsroom telling people i love that and i'm a huge fan of christiane amanpour uh, with cnn because of her foreign correspondent years the, the times the country she's been to the things she's done the risks she's taken the everything from evil dictators to regular folks she's spoken to i think she's amazing so those would be just some of mine mackling i've got a clip in the wheel there of mine brett uh but before i get you to play that i will echo the sentiments of kelly moore because for me it was bob irving it was ken nicholson the friar and it was sod Keelback uh, calling uh, the Jets and the Bomber games that uh, brought everything to life for me. But this man, I don't know what it was about the way he told the story, but beyond inspiring for me. And that name, Big Duke, stuck. Even after the shy, skinny youngster, Marion, Michael, Morrison, even after he became Big Duke, the two-fisted, ultimately tough-screen legend you knew as John Wayne. Only now you know the rest of the story. His pauses were as important as the words he said. And Paul I, Harvey. And I guess for me, uh, and I sort of, did I ruin your, you, you did a pause there and then I jumped in. <laughs> It's all right. You're doing a dramatic pause, and then I ruined it. I was trying to do the Paul Harvey thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry, that was just instinct kicking in. Oh, there's a pause. Must speak, must speak. For me, like a lot of sports broadcasters, I always liked uh, Van Earl Wright, who was on CNN. I liked liked their whole team, Fred Hickman and... uh, Nick, oh, God, well, I can't remember his name. Do you remember the other guy, Greg? I can see him. He had great hair. Was it uh, like, uh, shoot, Nick? Anyway, if you remember his name, text us. He is, he is unfortunately no longer with us, but I can't remember his name. It's been like 30 years since I watched CNN Sports. Uh, Marv Albert, I've mentioned that, but 
who used to be on uh, this radio station on Coast to Coast, the late Art Bell, when he would come on overnight to the theme song with the Midnight Express, and he'd come on and say, from the high desert in the great American Southwest, I bid you all good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. And that was uh, my first job here at CJOB, was the overnight operator listening to Coast to Coast. If you go to the 680 CJOB Instagram page, you can see it either on our main feed or in our story, something really beautiful that's been crafted in Minnedosa. And that's where we're going at 737. Loren, what what is happening there? Oh, it's such a beautiful uh, poppy blanket that they've created. All these tiny crocheted poppies done by, like, I think it was 35 Minidosians, Minidosa wands, Minidosites. And then they put it together into this lovely blanket that's now hanging over the war monument in town. So it's a great story of how it all came together, what inspired the woman behind it. And then, of course, man, what a great town, right? Hold on a second. Didn't you grow up there? And you don't, as, it, as it was Minidosians, Minidosites. <laughs> Minidosa wands. Neither. What is it? Minidosans? uh, Yeah, there you go. I think it's just Minidosans. Uh, My dad will text. More fun to (laughs) Yes. Ross will text me in a moment to uh, confirm uh, exactly what it was. He he was the rotary guy for a long time. So we didn't need a moniker because you you just knew just awesome from just plain and simply (laughs) awesome. Like the aura surrounding a Minidosan was just there. If I can take twelve seconds to. Point out that Loren McNabb, after three years of working together, does not know my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm <laughs> sobbing in the in the studio no. over so here. I tagged you in that post, and then I hovered over it Except to make sure I didn't. had the right one. I did, and then Gr- Brett texted and said, "By the way, that didn't take." And I looked again, and I was like, "That's absolutely." I had typed it in right, but anyway, I digress. You're. You're fine. You'll live. <laughs> yes, you can also see the pictures on Lorenz Twitter at McNab on Global. You can see them uh, on Greg's at GMACWPG or on CJOB's Twitter at 680CJOB. It really is just a lovely blanket. More details at 737. But in the meantime, for the past, how long has it been now? Eight months? Is it nine months yet? March to April, May, June, July, <laughs> August, September, October. We're in uh, month eight, yes. Okay, so eight months I have had the the privilege, I'm thankful to have been able to still come to have a job, A, and B, that I get to come to work because I live alone, and if I had to work from home, I would go completely insane. Yes, and I think that's where I'm at right now. So I'll just leave it there because, honestly, in the beginning when I came home, I've been home the whole time. Uh, there are so many things to be grateful for. One is that you're here. You can be more isolating if you want to. If you're worried, really worried about COVID, I get to stay in the house. I get to see my kids more. There's all sorts of great things. But the routine is really lost, and I am very much missing just the little things like fresh air right away in the morning, uh, the sunrise from the building, all seeing you guys, the eye contact, the meetings that aren't on the phone. There's a whole host of things that are really starting to drive me crazy now, Greg. Yeah, well, I've done both during the pandemic, and uh, for as much as I appreciated what our employer did to make sure that we were all safe, I if given the choice, it isn't even close for me. I love being here in the studio, in the workplace, and I definitely have my routine, which includes my daily run through the drive-thru to get my morning pick-me-up. Sylvain Charlebois is professor, senior director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax, and Sylvain joins us now. Good morning, Sylvain. Hey, good morning. So you have a theory. It isn't just people who are heading into the office, hitting the drive-thru for coffee, donuts, and other assorted uh, deliciousness. There are people working from home doing something called a fake commute. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, uh, and frankly, it's, uh, it's a, an accumulation of several conversations I've had with uh, executives in the food uh, service industry that got me thinking that perhaps, uh, perhaps a lot of people just go out, uh, go in their cars, drive around, go through a drive through only to go back home with a coffee and bagel or muffin and, uh, and go through their, uh, their daily work pattern. That's, and at the beginning, I thought, a fake commute? Like, who would want to do that? It's, is that? Is that good for the environment? Is that good for your car? But when you start thinking about it and when you start looking at uh, financial results of, of several different 
restaurant chains, it kind it kind of makes sense because there's still, I mean, sixty overall in Canada, sixty percent of people who can't work from home still work at home. And the traffic volume in most cities is actually decent. It's not the same as it used to be, uh, but it's actually decent. Uh, and um, when you look at the financial results of a company like Tim Hortons, for example, uh, we were expecting Tim Hortons to, to, to get slaughtered at the beginning of, of the pandemic uh, for, for their business, uh, for their uh, morning business. It was supposed to drop by at least 30%. It didn't. It dropped by about 11%. So, and just yesterday, I heard the president of A&W stating that a lot of people just go through a drive-thru only to eat a family dinner in their cars, just to do something different. So there is, I think there is something there, and, and people are are really thinking about structure and normalcy, and that's one way to do it. Now, you've also pointed to a survey that talks about how an increasing number of uh, people are going for a ride just to get out. Yeah, and and so th- that was a U.S.-based survey. Uh, many people believe that they're more efficient at home. Uh, they're working harder because they're not spending as much time behind the wheel, which is great for you know the economy and, and employers, but you need a break. <laughs> and that... And that physicality, that physical uh, aspect between your professional life and your personal life, does, it's, hard, it's harder to actually establish that uh, during COVID if you're working from home. And so that's why people are just getting out uh, for a drive and, and they'll, they'll stop at, a, at their favorite drive-through to, only to pick up something. And, uh, and frankly, given that we're in into the ninth month of this pandemic, and it's not going to end tomorrow. Um, I actually do think it's, it's, it's healthy to do that. If you think it's important for you to do that, you should. Yeah, it's a mental health uh, ga- question, I think, as well there, Sylvain. We only have about 30 seconds, but you've got the finances to show the sales haven't dropped as we thought at the coffee shops. You've got surveys saying people are just going for a drive. And I think at the end of the day, now that we know that many of us might be at, staying at home for the foreseeable future, we are going to have to find ways to feel normal again. Absolutely. And this is kind of the message I want to convey to your listeners, is that if you want to go out, I think you should. It's great that you do. Uh, it's it's great that you actually bring some structure into your life. There's a lot of things you can't control during COVID, but if there is one thing you can control, is exactly that. So if you want to do it, power to you. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor, Senior Director, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Sylvain, thank you as always, sir. All right, take care. Bye-bye. It's Thursday just after 7.30, which means it's our small town salute brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort, just 30 minutes north on Highway 59. Visit southbeachcasino.ca for updates. Now, one week ago, we spoke to the mayor of... Loren, do you want to say it? (laughs) And jokingly asked about the rivalry between his town and Minnedosa. Yeah, we were sort of joking, but it's not Mayor McCutcheon's fault for not realizing that there's a bigger rivalry between Minnedosa and Nipua than he realized. We just wanted to mention that because it's by pure coincidence, Brett McGarry and Loren McNabb, that this week we head to Minnedosa. It really is coincidence. We actually had several co-workers suggest a trip to my hometown after about after reading about something truly lovely that has taken place there this week. It involves a blanket of poppies that was really a labor of love for dozens of Minnedosa and area residents. It's a project that started way back in January, and that blanket has just been placed recently on the war monument in town. And so to tell us more, we're joined by Lorna Hislop, who helped coordinate the entire project. Good morning. Good morning. Let's t- Before we get into the blanket itself, Lorna, just tell us a bit about your connection to veterans in town. It's not necessarily a family connection, but it feels like one. Yeah, it does feel like one. Um, we have had family members that belong to uh, the armed forces uh, in the wars and that. But uh, my connection really started way back just when I came out of high school. Um, one of my first jobs was working in uh, the local legion uh, in Weyburn. And uh, it was there that uh, my love for the veterans and what they have gone through really kind of grew from, from there. 
So where did this idea for the blanket come from? Because I'm looking at a picture, and we've shared it on our social media. The cenotaph in Minnedosa is already beautiful in the middle of town, but now you've wrapped it in this 50-foot-long blanket of, of <laughs> poppies. It is absolutely beautiful. Where did you, where did you get this thought to this notion that, that this is something that you should be doing? Well, it started many, many years ago. Uh, it was, you know, scrolling around on Facebook. I had seen a, a posting from a group of uh, individuals in England that had did the same thing. The group had got together, had made all these poppies, and they were commemorating uh, one of the, the big wars over there. When they finished their poppy blanket, they hung it from a turret of a castle. And just seeing that image of that red flowing from the top of a castle has always been one that struck with me and has always stayed with me. And then last year, Winnipeg made their blanket, and, and it kind of brought back that, oh, you know what, that is really something that uh, is fantastic. And I didn't know whether it was something that I could do or, or wanted to do. But uh, December of last year, um, I was on the committee for Manitoba 150th here in Minnedosa, and we were trying to come up with ideas of what we could do to kind of make this year special. And that uh, the idea of the poppy blanket, I thought, well, maybe this would be the year to do it. So... I took it to a group of women that I crochet with at the United Church in January, and I said, how would you like to do this project? And they looked at me uh, with kind of uh, deer-in-the-headlight looks and said, I, you come up with the strangest things. But they fully supported me, asked me for the patterns, and we just started. Um, and then I threw it out to the community, opened it up, and said that if anybody wants to help us, I was looking for poppies. My goal was for 5,000 poppies, either crocheted or knitted. Um, I came very close. I got up to 4,600. They were, uh, you know, given to me over the year. And then in October, we got together for three days and put it all together. How did you put it together? Yeah, we uh, uh, tied all of the poppies onto a piece of chicken wire. It's 36 inches wide and 46 feet long. I hear there was at least 35 people who crocheted hundreds of those poppies. And then there was yeah. another two dozen that helped attach it to the chicken wire. And just on a personal note, I'm going to give a shout out to Heather Curry because she's the mom of my best friend, yes. Lorna. So I know she was part of the group there as well. It's such a tremendous testament to just how a community can come together. It had to feel so good when you wrap that monument with that blanket at the end. What was the sort of feeling in the community and what's the feedback been just about being part of something like this? Uh, it's been overwhelming, totally overwhelming. Um, when I first came up with the idea, uh, my vision was to, to have it hung, much like that image I saw, you know, way back when with from the castle. But karma has a way of coming in and kind of taking over things. When I couldn't uh, get the uh, logistics uh, worked out for hanging it, I thought, well, we'll wrap it around the uh, cenotaph, and and I think it was just the best thing that ever could have happened. The um, just by wrapping it around and, and that, it just it just seemed to set it right off. The feedback has absolutely been phenomenal. It had shares from all over the country on the, the social media. And actually, my daughter had received a call at her workplace the other day from a veteran who had shared it with all of his wartime vets from around the world. So he said, expect calls. He said, they're just, they're overwhelmed with the way that we have gone ahead and, and kind of um, made this a real remembrance. Lorna, we have to let you run, but people don't need to take mine and Loren's word for it. Minidosa is an incredible place to live. It's an incredible place to visit. What is it that you love so much about Minidosa? The elevator pitch, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, it's just a small town uh, community that uh, is just great to live in. We're close to centers, uh, but small town, everybody knows everybody, and we look after each other. So uh, we support each other. We encourage each other. It's just a fantastic place to live. And Lorna, one final question. How many times did you poke yourself with uh, the poppy <laughs> pins? Uh, well, let's just say I still have all of my fingers. So. <laughs> <laughs> Lorna, it's not jo as bad as what they used to be. <laughs> well, Lorna, thank you so much for joining us. What a great initiative. We appreciate the time this morning. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Lorna Hislop helped coordinate the entire project, the Poppy Blanket in Minnedosa. And again, if you want to see pictures, go to the 680 CJOB Instagram account. And it, it's almost surreal when you look at it. It's just so bright, so red, so beautiful. It's just a magnificent magnificent thing that they have put together ahead of Remembrance Day, of course, lest we forget.
Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And we've been talking this morning about your favorite broadcasters because of CNN's John King and how awesome he is with that fancy touchscreen. A lot of people singing his praises on social media, so that got us thinking about our favorite broadcasters. So we're asking you for your chance to win some Santa Lucia pizza. So text us at 204-780-6868. We do have an example of one of those texts that is coming, Greg. It has to do with the sportsings. Yes, and uh, actually my dad texted me the name of one of these two gentlemen. Uh, You'll probably know which one. As a huge sports fan, as a child watching the CFL and NHL, there were no better sports announcers than the late greats Don Whitman, of course, Winnipeg's own, and Don Chevrier. Don Whitman did CFL, NHL, Olympics. Oh, some of the greatest Olympic moments in Canadian history. And Chevrier did the NHL, CFL, and MLB. Yeah, Don Chevrier doing the Expos games. Wow, he was good. Two giants in the sports fabric and sorely missed. Thank you so much for that text at 780-6868. And keep them coming. We're giving away Santa Lucia just after 9.15. Now in a moment, we are about to speak to one of our favorite broadcasters, one of the most hardworking broadcasters, uh, because uh, he has been watching these numbers closely, I'm sure. I Thankfully, yesterday, I did not stay glued to the television because I knew once I saw that Nevada wasn't releasing numbers until 10 a.m. Pacific time today, I said, that's it. I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and, and wait for the, the something to be declared declare that's not going to happen tonight. Loren, that was last night. Yeah, it's hard not to watch, though. We're so intrinsically tied to the United States, and a lot of us, beyond just the results, are wondering what these results say about this nation that many of us know and love. And so there's so many ways to come at this. But right now, the focus is on the numbers, Greg, because it's a numbers game for now. Yeah, and it's a roller coaster ride, of which has been about uh, 36 hours to this point. It's had a lot of twists and turns. Global News is all over the United States to get the story behind the story. Reggie Cicchini joins us now. And Reggie, before we get an update on any of the races we continue to watch, based on your tweet from an hour ago, I'm suddenly more worried (laughs) about your meal choices than the amount of sleep you haven't had. Here's what you had to say at Cicchini underscore DC. Election coverage brings out the college life meal plan. A lot of coffee, some Pop-Tarts takeout, and whatever is left in the cupboards since there's no time for groceries. How are you doing with the, with the food intake there, Reggie? You run on adrenaline, and you realize that there will be an end eventually, um, and, and you just enjoy the fact that they weren't out of pomegranate Pop-Tarts at Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> pomegranate! I didn't know that was didn't even know, Yeah, no kidding. We might have to get you to uh, send some to us. That sounds like a, a great delicacy. So, Reggie, depending on where you look, AP has it one way, CNN has it another. Arizona is either solidly in the possession of Joe Biden, or it is still in play is that as good a place for us to start this morning than other as other it yeah it is arizona's big you know just really quickly to go back to what loren was saying you know there's such a great interest in canada it's because whatever happens down here national security is at risk the financial markets are at risk the relationship for trade is at risk that's why there's such an interest in 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 watching what happens with the race down here looking at arizona though uh there are still uh, counts that are going to come in from Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is, uh, and uh, from some of the smaller counties in and around the state. Uh, there is talk that some of these ballots are going to lean Democratic. We saw overnight Donald Trump narrowed the gap when some of those Maricopa County ballots went towards him more so than what was expected. Uh, this is going to be a squeaker of a race no matter what, uh, and it could really kind of lay the groundwork for Biden to make his way to 270, or it creates a new path that maybe we didn't think about or see in the data for Donald Trump to get to 270. There are still, I think, 50,000 votes to count in Georgia. That race has narrowed. We're also watching Pennsylvania in addition to Arizona and Nevada, Reggie. And then there's all this talk about court challenges and just some of the pure, the challenge to fight back against some of the words of Donald Trump yesterday as he tweeted things out, declaring states that were his, declaring that there was fraud, declaring all sorts of things. It really is, even when we get the numbers in, going to go on much longer than that based on how the fight has already started in many of these states. 
Yeah, and we should point out what the Trump campaign is saying right now. A lot of it is baseless and simply inaccurate. He cannot hereby declare uh, himself the winner in Michigan when the lead that Joe Biden has in Michigan right now is larger than what the margin that Donald Trump won it was over Hillary Clinton in 2016. It's the same situation in Wisconsin. Pennsylvania, the litigation is just try to stop ballots from being counted. Again, provisional ballots that were mailed in largely uh, to split towards Joe Biden from what we've seen already. It's an 80-20 split and the kind of 800,000 ish ballots to be counted still are in and around Philadelphia uh, and the Philadelphia suburbs. So there is a fear there from the Trump campaign. Same as what they're seeing in Georgia. Georgia is now a state that's competitive. There's a chance that these 50,000 ish remaining ballots in the state could tilt towards Joe Biden. It would put it into recount territory. But there is a fear here. There's a fear in Nevada, too, with the Trump campaign set to uh, to make some kind of major announcement, quote unquote, half an hour before those results are released, where Joe Biden is leading by 8,000 points. So this is going to go on for hours and days. Global's Reggie Cicchini joining us live on 680 CJOB. By the way, Reggie, how much sleep did you get last night? More. I got five hours, but rollbacks can sometimes do a lot for helping you sleep. (laughs) Reggie Cicchini, thank you so much. Again, one of the hardest working broadcasters we have ever spoken to. Always happy to have a chat with Reggie, especially around election time. It's an exciting time, and you can follow the numbers at globalnews.ca, cjob.com. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, if you are just tuning in, we would urge you to go to the audio vault at cjob.com or make sure you subscribe to the podcast for the start because we just had between 8.35 and 9 a.m. an incredible conversation with a Winnipeg woman named Susan Creepart who very uh, emotionally shared the story of her husband, Dr. Owen Mooney, on Monday on Facebook, she talked about how he is one of the doctors. He's a critical care doctor, and he's one of the doctors who signed that open letter that went to the province. He was healthy when he signed it, and he has since come down with COVID-19. He's now confined to the basement. She and the kids have been tested. Those tests came back negative, but she is experiencing symptoms, so she's going to get tested again. But uh, Loren, she... uh, was passionate, emotional, angry, and uh, it was just a just an incredible conversation. Yeah, one of the, the well, there were so many takeaways. First of all, she wanted to hammer home the point that her husband is so healthy; he's a fit forty-four-year-old, and in her words, he's more fit right than he was at in he, than most twenty-year-olds. And and now he's feeling weak; he's got muscle fatigue. He had just the chest tightening symptoms she talked about, and he and and they question she asks him on a regular basis uh, through the door of the basement is, you know, how are you better today? Worse? How are you feeling? And last night he was feeling worse. And so she's a just concerned for his personal health. And then she knows how he's feeling because as, as she said in his her words, his his goal in life is to help people. And now he's stuck at home, unable to help the very people that need him most right now. She was so fired up about the words of our health minister, Cameron Friesen, because as we know, he came out uh two days ago and made the comments that doctors questioning the motivation of doctors to sign these letters at a time that in his words would create chaos in the system. And she responded with this simple words like, what do you, these doctors aren't trying to become a politician. They don't want your job. They want you to help them with their jobs. And I thought that was a great answer too. And then finally, Greg, the big thing that gave me chills was how she talked about the fact that she went to see her mother on the weekend before she knew her husband had COVID didn't hug her because that's the right thing to do. Didn't, um, you know, touch her or come close contact and said in her own words, thank freaking God I didn't because the next day she found out her husband had COVID. And that's what we all need to be thinking about, that if you have it and you pass it on to someone who cannot sustain those symptoms, what are you going to feel like? I want to read two text messages, but first I want to say very quickly, I've always felt that in any line of work, in any avenue of life, a true professional, a true giver is someone that tells you their story, shares with you what they've experienced for everyone else's benefit, not for their own gratification or sense of grandeur or look at me. I really got the sense that the reason Susan shared her Facebook post has shared her and Owen's story so freely and passionately is because they don't want other people to go through what they're going through. And I really got the sense as well from listeners and their feedback immediately 
Uh, we didn't get any text messages, maybe one while Susan was on the air. But as soon as we said goodbye to her, the text messages started flowing in. And I think you sense that too. Two text messages I want to read. One came in to my personal phone from a good friend of mine, Jason. And Jason, I know, listens regularly, but he very seldomly weighs in. This is what he had to say. To me, that was the best perspective communicated since the start of COVID. And he said, great interview. Well, great interviewee, great guest would be my response to that. And then uh, at 204-780-6868, I feel for Owen and Susan, but it might be the story Manitobans need to hear and can relate to. A great warning for all. Thanks for allowing, quote unquote, real people to share their stories. It's more relevant than the same old political diatribe. What really stuck, uh, hit home for me was when she talked about how they were so vigilant, but fatigue sets in and you, you can tell yourself that you're doing all the right things and that you're trying to stay on top of it. But that fatigue does set in and you might catch yourself doing something that maybe you weren't doing back in March. And it's not because you're lazy. It might just be like, there's, this is a long time. And I think this has gone on longer than a lot of us expected it to go. So it has me wondering, am I still doing all the right things? I think like I wash my hands. I don't know how many times a day I put on sanitizer. I, I bet you I have like 30 coats of sanitizer on my hands just from when I got here this morning. I feel like, uh, you know, like I'm waxing a car or something. My hands are eventually just going to be sort of like uh, frozen in carbonite, like frozen in sanitizer. <laughs> I've got so much on my hands. But am I going to the store too often? And when I go to the store... I tried to maintain that physical distancing, but I admit since, especially since the mask mandate, I might sort of blow past people a little bit closer. Whereas before I was like, you know, it was that weird, awkward dance where everybody was trying to figure out uh, which way to go. And now I, I might have no problem walking immediately by somebody, but it just, it makes me wonder like, am I doing everything right? Am I doing something wrong? Am I putting myself at risk? And maybe by proxy putting others at risk, Loren, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I hopefully we'll be able to replay some of this interview at some point throughout the day because I just, I can't stress enough how that there were so many points in that conversation, like you mentioned, Brett, that made me think, yeah, no, she's making a good point here. I know I'm not going far enough and I don't have COVID in my home, but what if I do like she's now dealing with, right? What, what are the measures that I'm not personally taking? And then what are the measures that the province isn't taking? And this has just come into my inbox just now, guys. It's a poll that was just done by probe research after manitoba went into code red and they just released the results this morning 80 percent of manitobans feel the province was ill prepared for the second wave manitobans strongly support this code red in fact the majority think it doesn't go far enough does that sound familiar kind of sounds like how our doctors are feeling and only one third of manitobans have confidence in our hospital's capacity to deal with this and this worry of course is more acute in winnipeg according to this probe research poll so that feeling right now of what we can do and what she was trying to express there it's there in the data, it's there in the polls, it's there in what the doctors are saying. The question is, what are we going to do about it? I know Premier Pallister hasn't had COVID-19, at least if he has had it. It's not public knowledge. I don't believe, and there's no reason for me to believe that he has. My point is, when people were pushing back on us in Monday and Tuesday, when we were calling out the Premier for not being present on Friday, or making an appearance before the people of Manitoba Saturday or Sunday... It's this type of message, this human sentiment, this humanity being expressed for my concern for other people that I think we need more than ever. And when it comes from someone like Susan, the fact that her husband is a doctor obviously lends it another layer of credibility on its own, an incredible message, of course. But if you heard that from a politician, some conveyance in a similar fashion, would you not know, would you not believe that they're in it with us as opposed to being on the sidelines and wondering what the motives of doctors are complaining about the number or amount of resources that they have. That's the difference between a politician and a real person. We need real people. We need real leadership right now more than ever.
Speaking of Santa Lucia pizza, we got to give some away right now. Based on your text messages at 204-780-6868, we've been asking you this morning, who are your favorite broadcasters over the years? Because a lot of people on social media have been singing the praises of CNN's John King, the one who stands in front of the monitor, the fancy touchscreen, and he's a wizard with, with that thing. He really is. Uh, it's got to be stressful standing. Oh, and as Loren pointed out, he's a southpaw. He's left-handed, but he's got to use his right hand predominantly, but every so often he has to reach over and then he has to apologize and probably feel all, he shouldn't have to apologize. excuse the reach yeah pardon the reach <laughs> so we got a bunch of great text messages at 204-780-6868 michelle for example said although maybe only famous in winnipeg my favorite broadcaster is the inimitable brian barkley i miss his cheerful and friendly reports from the traffic cruiser i'm sure he is the nicest person in winnipeg you might just be right on that and i think we can all agree we all miss his friendly reports greg from the traffic cruiser. No question. I was texting with Brian last night, in fact. One of our listeners says, how about Darren Dunn? He always brings the excitement to every race he calls. Darren, of course, now runs the Cinnaboy Downs. That's a pretty great place to start. And then to end up, Loren? This is uh, <laughs> this is what I like is it's self-serving. Is this the one I'm reading? Good morning. I hold a special spot for Walter Cronkite, listening to him with my dad as a youngster. Today, I would choose all of you. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I like that I get to read this one. I cannot go one single morning without listening to you guys. And then they add, I would love to win a pizza or two to share it with all my nurses here, here, working so very hard each and every day at our assisted living community, Brightwater Senior Living. All are pulling long shifts in order to keep all our residents safe. Like all of our healthcare workers, they are my heroes. Let's call That's an audible. I'm calling an audible. And I, yeah. I, I'm hoping that you guys are okay with that. I, yes. I'm okay with the pizza going to that one. Okay, yeah. and not because no, the no, person because would choose of all of us, but because no. of what of what this person does for a living, correct? Yeah, yes, because, and, I, I confess, when I pulled this, I thought I saw Walter Cronkite, and I thought it was going to be a story about Walter Cronkite. I didn't even read the rest of it. I didn't see that there was anything about us in there. So, but then, especially the healthcare stuff. So, yes, yeah, she's going to share it, or she, he's going to share it with uh, their coworkers, and so I like it. I like it. I want this pizza to go to them. I, I endorse this decision. I approve this, this message. <laughs> I can even be part of this pizza lunch if you want. We we declare <laughs> that we are calling it. That is the winner of this election for today. Thank you for all your text messages at 204-780-6868. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.